actually, I get up at 6 a.m. on Sunday mornings, and my son was up at, I, I heard some rumblings at about 5.30 in the morning, and I went downstairs and expected my son, he's got a final exams tomorrow, I expected him to be there studying, he was not. In our kitchen, where I first go to put on my coffee, there was a cup of coffee in a sealed flask and a pan of scrambled eggs sitting there with a Father's Day card. And uh, I'm like, dude, dude, and he went back to bed. He got up at 5.30, did all this, went back to bed. I mean, that's brilliant. Love, love, it turns out coffee and eggs, that's my love, food is my love language, I think. I, I, I think so. Couldn't have done a better thing. Um, for those of you who are dads here this morning, can you remember life before dad, being a dad? I, I mean, can you remember, I, I mean, kids, Kids are awesome, but do they ever rock our worlds? They turn our, our lives upside down. And, and then there's those uh, soon-to-be dads. I don't know if you know anyone in your life right now who's going to be a dad for the first time soon. Don't they have this kind of deer-in-the-headlights kind of look for about nine months? They, they just look like, what is coming? And it's awesome. And uh, to get us warmed up this morning, I wanted to show you a, a scene, my fa- one of my favorite film, film moments of a, a dad showing kind of his love on his kid. And, and it's a, a boy, a little boy that brings his dad to, uh, to, to his show and tell to, at his class. So let's uh, watch this great scene. This is the skateboard that my grandma Ruth gave to me. This is my fish, Jaws, and he's a really mean fish. And this is the day that my daddy says is the happiest day of his life. Can you tell us about that day, Mr. Flurry? Uh, yeah. You guys want to hear it? You want to hear something? Yeah. You want to hear about that day? Well, I'll tell you what. This is December 4th, and we were at the hospital all day and most of the night. We was waiting on this little man to come out, and then all of a sudden, the doctor showed up and said, he's not coming out. We got to go in and get him. Like a search team, right? So what she did was, you sure I can tell the story? Yeah, go ahead. So what happened was is they took a tiny little knife and then cut right underneath the belly button. They opened her up and then took her hands and stuck them all the way in her belly and disappeared. And she was in there just rustling and rumbling and looking for something. Then she started pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling and she was pulling and all of a sudden she stopped. And she looked at me and said, Mr. Fleury, are you ready to have your world rocked? And I said, well, I guess so. And so she starts pulling and pulling, and all of a sudden the head popped out, and I looked down and I said, Kevin! And then he looked back at me and he said, Daddy! Daddy! Yeah. And that was, uh, that was the happiest day of my life. Yeah. <laughs> I love that scene. Uh, I am not sure that for me, for my dad, I was the happiest day of his life. I was actually number four, <laughs> and I was the surprise. I mean, they weren't intending on, they were intending to stop at three, and seven years later, out comes number four. So I, I'm not sure I was the happiest day of my life, but when you think about it, I, when, when I think about the happiest days of our lives, um, they're, they're really, if you were to survey your whole life, they, they probably would not be about your job or your school accomplishments. They probably would not be about big purchases that you've made or any other kind of win. I'd say most of the happiest days of our life would have to do with family, with being in a family, with being part of a family in some way, shape, or form. 
And if we're honest, some of the unhappiest days of our lives have to do with the same thing. They have to do with family. I mean, family, there's, there's all kinds of drama when it comes to being part of a family. And so there, there's the, the, the highs, and, and there certainly can be the lows at the same time. Uh, I, I think one of the reasons that, that family life and, and uh, being part of a family can test us so is because it's, it's in the family that we learn uh, to grow. We learn we need to grow. We learn the need that we have to love. Uh, theologian uh, Joseph Sund, he writes, he says, it's in the family where we first learn to love and relate, to order our obligations, and to orientate our activities towards others. He says it's in the basic ordinary exchanges between husband and wife, brother and sister, parent and child, that we learn what it means to flourish. I mean, uh, haven't you found it just a little bit that it's almost sometimes easier to love strangers that you meet than it is to love the people you're related to? I mean, isn't that kind of true? I, I like uh, what Johnny Carson, uh, former Tonight Show host, said. He said, he was talking about Thanksgiving, and he said, Thanksgiving is an emotional holiday. He says, people travel thousands of miles to be with people they only see once a year. And then they discover once a year is way too often. <laughs> well, God actually commands us to love those that we're related to. If we go to the Ten Commandments, uh, the first four are kind of God-directed. Love the Lord your God, you know. And, and, and then the next six commandments have to do with how we treat other people, how we love other people. You, you know, don't murder them. That's unloving. <laughs> don't lie, don't cheat, all that kind of stuff, right? Don't covet. But what's the very first of those six commands? It's fascinating to me that the very first of those six commands is, is family-related. Honor your father and your mother. And it goes on to say, as the Lord God has commanded you so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God has given you. God, God, one of God's pictures of human flourishing is that we would honor our parents, that we would love our parents. God cares that we love our families. And, and we're in this series uh, called Neighbors where we talk about loving our neighbor as ourselves. And today we're talking about loving our family. Um, and this is a, uh, I, I want to say to help us wrestle with this, we're going to look at a couple of uh, a key texts. Colossians chapter 3 is where we're going to kind of land this morning for the most part. So if you want to, if you have a Bible, you can grab a Bible, uh, Colossians 3, and we're going to be starting at verse 12 in just a moment. And we're also going to be looking at kind of a parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 5. And through these texts, we're going to kind of ambitiously address four groups of people this morning. Wives, husbands, children, and fathers. I'd say just about everyone fits here. And so let's dive in. And we're going to look at Colossians 3, 12 to 21. Would you, would you join with me? And if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's word? Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, 
hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children as, or they will become discouraged. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, we invite you. Teach us, Lord, what it means to love those closest to us. Whether it's a, a, a husband loving a wife, a wife loving a husband, in every relationship uh, with our parents, uh, with, with our cousins, with our brothers and sisters. Um, Lord, teach us to love. Lord, empower us to love. Uh, grant us your grace this morning as we look into this uh, such important topic today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. Um, I love this Colossians 3 text. It, it's, uh, it's got a great image in it. Uh, Paul begins with this, this image of clothing yourselves with love. He says, put on love. In the verses before, he's saying, get naked. You know, there's, there's some clothes you might need to take off, he says. And so he's saying, take off any negative attitudes and, and actions like, like anger or rage or malicious behavior, slander and, and filthy language and lies. And here, here in verse 12, he's telling us to get dressed. What does he want us to get clothed in? He, he says, get clothed with compassion and mercy and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and forgiveness. Those are nice clothes, he says. And then we're told in verse 14, he says, over all those things, over all those virtues, put on love. It, it binds them all together. Paul says, if you want to make a fashion statement, make sure you don't forget to wear love. Put on love. Love kind of makes the whole outfit work. Why do we do this? Uh, well, we do this because of three reasons that we see laid out in verse 12. He says, therefore, as, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, we are, <laughs> I, I love th those, those words, we're, we're God's chosen ones, selected by God to be his. We belong to him. And, and then we're also holy. Holy just means set apart. We're set apart by God to be his people, and, and we're set apart for a special purpose in the world. And we're dearly, dearly loved which means God is awfully fond of you. <laughs> he even loves me, which is saying something. And if he can love me, he can love anybody. If he can love you, he can love anybody. <laughs> so why do we love? We love because we're, we're now part of God's family, because being part of this, this being chosen and being holy and being, being dearly loved is that we'll now be able to, we'll be able to free, be free to bear the family resemblance. We'll begin to look like God. We'll begin to exhibit the qualities of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that beautiful oneness and love that we see expressed in the Godhead, in the Trinity. And then after all this description of what love looks like, Paul lays it out with some more specific directions for families. He's got a word for wives and husbands and children and fathers. Let's look at each of these. Wives, verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now my question is, is did Paul, did he even have a hunch of what the impact of, of the use of that one word would have in the world? I mean, uh, the word submit, I'd say, is easily one of the most difficult and, and disliked and divisive words in all of Scripture. 
and it's a word he speaks to wives. Now, uh, let me say this, if it's any comfort to you wives out there, it's a word he speaks to every follower of Jesus. You look at Ephesians 5.21, it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Whatever the word submit means, it's something that that Paul thinks that every Christian can and should do. (laughs) We all get to do this. He's not instructing wives kind of in isolation. In fact, in this passage, he kind of, he's setting up some pairs. He's talking about wives and husbands, uh, children and fathers, and he goes on. A third pair is is slaves and masters. We're not going to look at that text today. But but in each example that he gives, these three pairs, there's something in common. One person has more power, one person has less power. Um, Think about wives. In in Paul's day, a wife had no legal rights. I mean, in in most cultures in the first century, it it was entirely male-dominated. Women were dominated by men. It was patriarchal. Men were in charge. They had all the education. They had all the financial advantages. They had all the rights. Women's rights weren't even dreamed of in the first century anywhere in the world. And so men held, held actual power over women. And, and whenever, whenever there is this kind of imbalance of power, what can be the, the tendency of the person who's in power? Kind of to abuse that power, right? <laughs> to lord over, to, to maybe exhibit controlling, trying to control the other person. Uh, it could be uh, trying to, to use them as an object to, to get what you want, to make your life easier or more comfortable. What's the, what's, let me ask you, what's the person who's holding less power likely to do? Resist and rebel, right? Isn't that the tendency against the person in power? And, and, and this is the kind of dynamic we see in these relationships, all three of these relationships. It's certainly one that we can see in, in marriage, and it's not restricted to the first century where we sometimes see this dynamic at work. Uh, that the man uh, can, can be self-absorbed and think, that, think really only about his own agenda. We, we can be like that. And the white wife might resist. And oftentimes her resistance can be quite subversive. Like, I'll show him who's boss, right? Uh, Paul Stevens, um, one of my seminary professors, and he's been here in this church before, uh, Paul uh, talked about a, a husband that he knew, a Christian husband uh, who, who used to say, I'm the head of the house. And his wife would retort with, yeah, but I'm the neck who turns the head. Right? I'm the neck that turns the head. Uh, I, I think of, uh, what's his face? Um, Woody Allen, who humorously works this out. He says, in my house, I'm the boss. My wife is just the decision maker. But there can be this kind of power struggle that goes on between men and women, husbands and wives. Paul wants to offer us a better solution. And what's his solution? Submission and love. To wives, he says, when, when you're in a place of less authority and, and less power, do the three, don't do the three R's. Don't resist and resent and rebel. Instead, as is fitting in the Lord, wives submit to your husbands. And submission, I just want to say this, I don't think it means being a doormat. I don't, I don't think it means being ruled over or controlled. It certainly does not mean submitting yourself to abusive behavior. I think it's all about another R word. R-E-S-P-E-C-T, Aretha Franklin sang, sang, right? It's a song that was actually written by a man. But it's the word respect. Paul in Ephesians 5, uh, 33, he wraps up his instruction there 
about husbands and wives with this kind of summary. Listen to what he says. He says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself. You hear that? <laughs> Loving your neighbor as yourself. Love your wife as you love yourself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. I, I, I think submission, when it is walked out, what does it look like? Looks a lot like respect. Um, it's fascinating to me that in these scriptures that wives aren't asked to love their husbands. Husbands, wives, but not wives, husbands. Why is that? I, I'm not only the only one to observe this, but I think that in general, wives find it easier to love than husbands do. Um, this summer, Angel and I are celebrating our 25th wedding anniversary. 25 years, can you believe it? 25 long years, she says. 25 long, long years. And it's been, uh, it's been phenomenal. Uh, it's wonderful. It, it has gotten better as the years gone on. And it's been phenomenally hard. <laughs> it's, uh, it's been challenging at times, crazy hard at times. And every uh, once in a while, my wife will say to me uh, a line, sometimes quite playfully, sometimes more seriously, she'll say something like, I think I love you more than you love me. I think I love you more than you love me. And I always, of course, disagree with her. No, I love you more than I love, love you love me. And, but, you know, when I say it back, I go, I actually, and I've never actually said this to her before, and, and I'm going to pay for this, I know. So here it is, out to the crowd. I think she is actually able to love me more than I am able to love her. I, I find it difficult to love. I, I think husbands are told to love because I think husbands need to be told by God to love. It's, it's not necessarily our natural tendency. We're good at a lot of things, but I think loving is one where, I, you know, when I, when I met Angel and, and we decided to start courting, which was rocking my world because in her culture it kind of meant, courting kind of meant getting married. So we went from zero to 120 in six seconds, it felt like. But I remember uh, hearing this song this next day, and I said, uh, it was Aaron Neville, I think, and Linda Ronstadt, and it says, um, there was a line in it that just caught me. I don't really know how, how to love, uh, and so God sent me an angel to teach me how to love. Something like that. And I mean, I had angel, an angel <laughs> sent to me, but I also could resonate with that line. I really don't know how to love. Um, and so the wife can be asking this, this question, does, does my husband love me as much as I love him? And, and she knows she loves him, but she wonders at time if he really loves her as much. And so when a, a husband can come across as unloving, she can be tempted to, to react in a, in a truly negative way. <laughs> she can be tempted to become disrespectful, criticizing and, and complaining as a way to, to, you know, urge him to love her better. And, and I'm asking, I, I ask the question, how, how well does that work as a motivator, you know? Uh, not, not so well, usually. I, I think it's interesting that the word love, which Paul uses to, to urge men to love their wives, is the Greek word agape, which means unconditional love. Love without conditions. That's how men are called to love. And the wording of that Ephesians text strongly suggests that the husband ought to receive unconditional respect. Christian spouses shouldn't Read this to say, husbands, love your wives unconditionally, and wives, 
Respect your husbands only if they've earned and deserve it. In these verses, respect for the husband is just as important as, as love is for the wife. What does it mean to respect? Uh, the Webster's uh, definition of respect is to hold somebody in high regard. What might that look like? It's a, it's a good question. If you're married, wives, I'd encourage you to, to pray that through, what it might look like in your marriage. What, is it, what would it look like to offer your husband respect? I mean, just in my own brainstorming, I think it, it look, might look like supporting your husband, being kind of a covering to him. Uh, I, I would suggest that it involves speaking respectfully to your husband. I, I'd say it involves speaking respectfully about your husband. By the way, this is not modeled well on modern television. Um, it, it's actually something that we don't see modeled very much when we watch TV shows. We, we actually see wives tend to be... The, the, the husband, generally, on modern television, is he's the brunt of the joke, right? He's the fool, and the woman's the wise one. And so there's this cultural attitude of disrespect towards husbands. I, I'd say it involves trying to assume the best of him. Try to look at... Look for where the glass is half full and not just where it's empty or half empty. Um, can I say this? Husbands, I think, can come across unloving. They don't always mean to come across unloving. Try and try, it, 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 with all the strength you can muster, try to give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, don't try to mind read your husbands. Uh, you might actually be disappointed with what you find in their minds. <laughs> A lot less might be going on than you think there is. Now, I don't want you to get me wrong here. Um, I, I'd say uh, respecting your husband doesn't mean that you avoid problems, that you avoid working out issues, that you sweep all, the, all issues under the rug. I actually think there's, there's meant to be this bold honesty in marriage, speaking the truth in love. I, I think whatever that looks like, it's meant to be done respectfully. I, I uh, saw this uh, really worked out in an, in an encounter between John Ortberg, a, a pastor and author. He writes about a time when his wife confronted him in their marriage. And this is what he says. Let me read it to you. He says, one evening, my wife, Nancy, he pulled me into our bedroom and said she wanted to talk. And she closed the door so that none of the kids could hear. And she took out a list. I was not happy to see a list. <laughs> she claims it was an index card, not a list. But it had words written on it, so I'd say it was a list. <laughs> you know, she said, when our marriage is at its best, I feel we share responsibilities. We divide our work well, and our kids see us do that, and I feel valued, and I think that's important for our family. But for some time, because you feel so many demands on your life, this value has been slipping. She goes on to say, when our marriage is working well, I, I also feel like we both know each other's lives. You know details about my life, and I know details about yours, and I feel like that's been slipping too. Lately, I know what's going on with you, but you don't ask me much about what's going on with me. She went on. She says, you know, when our, our marriage is at its best, you can listen and laugh and be spontaneous. You haven't been doing that for a while. I love that guy, and I miss him. He goes on to say, I, I knew what she was talking about. He said, I miss that guy too. I told her I, I'd love to feel free like that, but I feel like I'm carrying so many burdens. I have personnel issues and financial challenges at work. I have writing projects and, and travel commitments I feel like I'm carrying this weight all the time. I get what you're saying, but I need you to know I'm doing the best I can. No, you're not, she responded immediately. 
That was not the response I anticipated. Everybody is supposed to nod their head sympathetically when you say, I'm doing the best I can. But Nancy loves truth and me too much to do that, so she rang my bell. No, you're not. You've talked about how good it would be to see a counselor or an executive coach or maybe a spiritual director. You've talked about building friendships, but I haven't seen you take any steps towards any of that. No, you're not. And as soon as she said that, I knew she was right. But I didn't say that to her immediately because my spiritual gift is pouting. <laughs> which I exercised beautifully over the next few days. Anybody got a spiritual gift of pouting? I think some of you might. Just it's a hunch. What a, what a, what a meaningfully cool interaction between a husband and a wife. But I, I love how Nancy Ortberg spoke truth to her husband in such a winsome way. In such a respectful way, it's, it's, it's clear that she honored him in that, and she challenged him. She, she didn't, man, she was very, very truthful, but I, I'd say she did it with this amazing tone of respect. Wives, how do you submit? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I think, quite honestly, it's kind of going to probably, it actually doesn't tell us in the scripture exactly what it's going to look like. I'd say this is something you need to wrestle with and, 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 and think about, but I think it helps to, to remember the phrase in this, this text, as is fitting in the Lord. It's something you can do through the life and the power and the grace of Jesus Christ. Uh, I like how Paul Stevens puts this. He says, in Christ, in Christ, instead of ruling his wife, the husband loves her to death. Instead of revolting against her husband, the wife is free to bombard him with respect. This is not what each deserves. It is the gospel freedom, sheer grace. Isn't that good? Husbands, verse 19, you knew we'd get to you eventually. Uh, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And then in Ephesians 5, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, Christian teachers from the earliest centuries have have pointed out that what Paul asks the husband to do is actually harder than what he asks the wife to do. He asks the wife to show respect and, and to submit. He asks the husband to die, right? That, that's the example for husbands. It's, it's Jesus, you know, laying down your life. Let me, let me ask you, husbands, are, are we da daily dying to what we want in order that our wives might get what they need? As my, as my wife has said to me repeatedly, she said, Show me a man who's willing to, to love like Jesus, willing to lay down his life like Jesus did for her. And uh, I'll show you a woman who's willing to submit to that man. Um, well, what does loving look like? I, I'd say two things. If it's going to look like Jesus, I, I'd say it's going to be sacrificial. It's going to involve sacrifice. It's going to cost you something. Uh, so let me ask the guys, what are we doing each day for our wives that involves sacrifice? And I'm not just talking about flowers and, and chocolates. Um, I, I'm a pretty slow learner in, my, in marriage life. And I, I can't emphasize that enough. I'm really, really a slow learner in my marriage. But this is not rocket science. I've known her now for, for quite a few years. And, and actually, it's really clear to me what loving her best looks like. And some of you, maybe some of your wives haven't told your husband, but I, I know, she's told me, this is what loving me well looks like. Do you know what it is for me, for her, for us? Intentional quality time every single day. 
having a, a decent quality conversation every single day. Do you know what I find hard? Is when I come home from a day at work, that's the last thing I want to do. To spend 20 or 30 or 40 minutes talking to, to my wife is something that, you know, I, I just, it's the last thing I want to do. Doing that costs me something. It's sacrificial. It's something I don't want to do. But when I do that thing, you know what it does, both spiritually and what it does for our marriage, is it, 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 it's like infusing oxygen into an oxygen-starved star, environment. And, and I, I see how uh, it just kind of fuels the fires of our relationship when I sacrifice for her, when I do that. And so, husbands, I don't know what, it, what sacrifice would look like in your marriage, but you probably have a hunch what your wife's love language is. If, don't, if you don't, figure it out. Find how you can love her. Ask her if she, if she hasn't told you outright. Ask her, what would loving you sacrificially look like? Um, so loving involves sacrifice. Paul says, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Don't be harsh. Love, apparently, does not look like harshness. What might a harsh man look like? One Christian psychologist put it this way. He says, harsh men persuade their wives through physical, mental, or verbal strength rather than through love. They use harsh language with their, their wives. They treat them with a severity that others would find offensive if they could see it. Um, again, confession time for me. If, if uh, I can say that some of the most hurtful seasons in our marriage has been when I've been harsh with my wife, where I've been sharp with my words and with my tone and with my body language. Um, I can be harsh, and, and quite honestly, I, I, I don't know if I'm alone in this, but I, I, I find it difficult to process negative emotions. And so when I get stressed or when I get frustrated or when I'm feeling hurt, often that translates uh, into my relationships with my family into anger and sarcasm and hurtful words. There's this sharp edge to how I treat the people that I live with when I'm stressed or frustrated or hurt. And even after 25 years of practice, I, I have lots of room to grow in, in ridding my life of that kind of sharp edge that, that is there, that I would be embarrassed if you saw a videotape of that part of my life. And so I would say this, I'd say loving our wives, this, this unconditional loving is going to involve sacrifice. And, and it's going to involve gentleness, <laughs> tenderness. All those, uh, those, those qualities we saw Paul laid out, the opposite of harshness, compassion and mercy and tenderness, all those things, gentleness. Okay, got to move on. On to children and fathers. In these next two verses, it addresses this other core relationship, parents and children. Verse 21. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now, Paul here isn't talking to adult children. He, he was addressing kids. This, that season of life where you are, are living directly under your parents' authority. It's kind of like when you're under their roof. You're living at home. I, I, so I, I actually extend this to, you know, you're 28 and you're still living at home. You're kind of still under their, their authority, right? It's, especially if they're not treating you like a roommate and they're, you're, they're paying the bills. Um, but he says, Paul says, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases God. Now, if submit is an unpopular word, obey is not exactly up there in people's top ten favorites, is it? Right? No one likes the word obey. And yet here's this, this great instruction. And I, I would say in the same way that submission can be such a word of, 
of beauty and power. I'd say obey is a powerful word. It's a good word, and especially in, in family life and when it comes to a child's development. It's the, the generation ahead, parents, creating a, a self and a, a safe, I should say, and, and healthy environment for kids, having boundaries and guidelines and parameters for them. It's, it's a very, very good thing. And so children actually submitting to a parent's authority is wisdom because it's actually trusting in the fact that they have more experience than you do. They've lived longer. They've gone ahead, and they're meant to pass on their experience and knowledge and wisdom to you. Um, I, like the well-known Mark Twain quote. You've all heard this one, I'm sure. He says, when I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I was 21, I was astonished at how much he'd learned in seven years. Now, uh, there are more parents in the room here today than there are children. So let me talk about what training our children in, in, in this instruction obedience. I want to say it's actually the parent's job. In fact, we're meant to, to teach our children to obey. And, and, and you got to do this when they're, they're two. And you got to do it when they're 10 and, and 12 and 17. Because we find out that the studies show us, doctors will, will tell you that, that a, a child's brain is still developing until they're like 21, 22. And so if you see a 20-year-old making really foolish mistakes, it's because they're, well, they can't blame everything on their brain, but their brain is part of the problem. It's still developing. And so what it tells us is you, you can't step off the gas of giving your kids guidance when they turn 12. They're still developing. Now, here's the, the, the thing with obedience training. You can make anyone obey. Even last week, I asked one of my sons to, to step up and do a chore immediately that he'd left undone. And it looked to me like he was not very responsive to my urgent request. And so I immediately said, after I count to five, uh, there'll be a, an unknown privilege that will just be taken from you. And it was good because I had no idea what privilege I was going to take. So I just started counting. One, actually, I started counting. I said, count to five. And I started, I said, five, four. He says, that's not counting in five. That's counting down from five. It's like, son, son. One, two, three. Why do they wait till you're like four and a half to jump up and do it? Why do they, you know? Anyway, I was glad I didn't have to make that decision. But there's, there's, there's that season where you kind of have to make your kid obey, for sure, just for their own safety. But part of our, our role is not just teaching them to obey, it's to obey. It's also teaching them to want to obey. Because you can obey on the outside and not be obeying on the inside, Right? You can look like you're obeying, but what are you doing inside? Those three R's again. Resisting, resenting, rebelling. Right? You're going through the motions. So how do you teach a child to want to obey? I, I, I don't know. I really have no idea. But let me say this. I, just, this is what came to me as I, as I thought about this. As children grow out of those first couple of years where where you're really having to tell them what to do, uh, you gotta get to a place that, and, and I think it's early, I don't think you wait till they're like eight or nine, but as soon as they have cognitive ability, you begin telling them why they should obey. You begin explaining the, the benefits of obedience. I, I love scripture. I, there's lots of laws and rules in scripture, and I love the fact that actually if we really study scripture, it's not just laws and rules. There's this benefit that's laid out for us as to why it's healthy for us to obey God's commands that will actually flourish because of it. And we gotta explain uh, these kind of things to our kids. 
Um, we got to teach them this, this other orientation. We got to treat your family kind of like this school of love, grounding them in theology. That their primary call is to love God, and, and loving God, one of the ways that, that gets expressed is by obeying God. And, and in obeying God, we find out that, that loving Him and obeying Him means that we love other people, and we treat others with respect, we treat others with love. And, and, and so we do that. And I want to say this, this is patient work. Teaching a kid to want to obey is patient work. It's why the, the teaching of obedience can never be done in a hurry. But I'd say this too, it's a huge gift to our kids. What about adult children? That's the rest of us here who are not kids in this room today. We're not called to obey our parents for the rest of our lives. Actually, there's a day when we're meant to step out from the authority and leadership of our parents and we're meant to take responsibility for our own lives. I actually think this is the primary goal of parents is to actually lead your kids to the place where they can step out as adults and take responsibility. They can be accountable uh, for their own lives. It's called catch and release, right? But that relationship to parents is, is still important. Uh, and, and while as adult children, obedience is no longer required, but honoring is. Back to the fifth commandment, honor your fathers and mothers. Honor your father and your, your mom and your dad. It's amazing to me that Jesus, in one of the last things he did on the cross, one of the the, the last things he said on the cross, you know what it was? He addressed John, one of the apostles, and he said, John, would you take care of my mom? Would you take care? It's interesting that that, uh, he was really concerned that his mother be taken care of in his absence. Um, And if you study Jesus, you look at his life, uh, he cared about his parents, actually. I mean, uh, he honored them. In, in significant ways, and we learn that honoring our parents is a way of honoring God. We've already talked uh, this morning about unconditional uh, love and unconditional respect. What about unconditional honor? Honoring our parents not for what they did for us or even because they were good parents. God expects us to honor our parents simply because they brought us into this world. They gave us the gift of life. What might honoring parents look like? Let me just uh, throw at you some suggestions this morning. I'd say honoring our parents looks like offering forgiveness. Offering forgiveness. We honor our parents by extending grace and forgiveness to them. Where they've wronged us, where they've hurt us, we let that go. We, we do this not just for their sake, but also for our sake. This healing that can go on. I mean, family, it's, it's as I said, the hardest moments can be in family life, and So we honor our parents by forgiving them for where they've let us down. Secondly, speak well of them, refusing to speak evil of them. Speak well of them when they're alive, and I'd say speak well of them after they're gone. Our words have power. We live in a day where we're, I'd say we're bolder in airing our family laundry. I've certainly been pretty out there and open about airing my family's laundry at times, right? Right? And that can, I'd say that can be healthy. Secrets are not conducive to emotional health. But to share those secrets, to share the, the failings of our families in such a way as to still respect them, I think that's a, a big thing. And we respect by sharing our words. Um, I think that's, that's honoring. Show gratitude. Um, give credit where credit is due with your parents. All parents, as I said, fail us in some way, but notice where they haven't failed. Notice where they actually got it right, where they succeeded. 
Appreciate that. Give thanks to them if, if they're still around. Give thanks to God. You know, one of my uh, most precious life memories, I'd say of all my life, this is one of the top ten probably, was being able to share in the last two weeks of my dad's death. As, as, he, as he went home to be with Jesus, we were with him that whole two weeks. And about a week before he died, we uh, were able to bring my dad home to his home from the hospital. And we gathered as a, as a family. My whole immediate family were there. And I had pre- been preparing kind of a tribute to my dad. And I was able to read this tribute to my dad, to my dad, with my siblings present. And uh, I know, I know my dad was, was honored by that. And you know what I sensed? I sensed God was pleased too. I sensed in that afternoon as we shared together the good things that we saw my dad, his qualities and his characteristics, I sensed God was really pleased by that. Maybe for some of you, you need to actually write a tribute to your parents. Be a healthy thing to do. Show gratitude. Seek their input, uh, their wisdom, value their experience, honor their years. Um, Support them and provide for them just as you've received their support. (laughs) Do this in in return to them. Uh, William Barclay pretty much says this, He says, the raising of children requires tremendous sacrifice, and it is only right that children make sacrifices for their parents in return. So children, obey your parents. Adult children, honor your parents. And this leads us to fathers. Verse 21, fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. I I loved quoting this verse to my dad when I was young. (laughs) I learned it as, fathers, do uh, do not exasperate your children, is how I learned it. And so I'd, I'd say, Dad, you're exasperating me. Lincoln was telling me this week, he said, said that in his family, he, he learned it, I think, from the King James Version, where it says, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. Anyone learn that one? And, and so apparently Lincoln's kids walk around saying things like, Dad, you're provoking me to wrath today. You know, this kind of thing. Right? It's just so funny hearing that from a little kid. Don't provoke me to wrath. But here in this verse, there's both a command not to provoke or exasperate your children, but we also see the purpose of the command, or they'll become discouraged. This kind of gives us a, a clue as to the goal of, of Christian fathers to actually raise children who are not discouraged. Part of that is to, to help them avoid, is to avoid doing those things that discourage them, and then also doing things that help them achieve what you might call the opposite of of discouragement. It's helping them grow into to being little men and women, little boys and girls of, of hope and of confidence and of courage. Got to wrap this up this morning. So, so let me just want to say one thing from Scripture this morning to dads. It's, it's really clear, both from Scripture and from all kinds of studies uh, done on parenting and on fathering. But if you're a dad, you simply got to know this. You have immense power in the lives of your kids. You, you have incredible power. What you say and how you say it, it can impact their lives immensely. And, and that power is never meant to be abused. We've been given this, this position, this authority, and, and we're never taken to take the authority we've been given and use it like a weapon in the lives of our kids. But if we'll step up and use that power for good, it can be awesome. There's another scripture that uses the word provoke. In Hebrews, it's, it's a, in a real positive way, provoke one another to love and good deeds. Dads, you can do that with your kids. You have that kind of influence. I, you know, I think we live in a day where, honestly, some of the toughest parenting is left to moms. 
I mean, if there's a hard conversation that needs to happen, often it's somehow the mom steps up and just does it, right? And dads are just kind of relieved. And I I don't want to say this. I, I want to say that our kids need to hear both voices in their heads. They need you to speak into their lives in all kinds of ways. They need to hear you say things like, I believe in you. You can do this. They need to hear the gospel from you. Hey, you're broken and messed just like me. They need to hear you apologize when you step out of bounds, when you abuse their authority, your authority in their lives. They need to see humility demonstrated in you. Guys, you you that have kids that are on the verge of of those adolescent years, they need to hear the sex talk from you, not from some porn. They need to hear you tell them about the most important topics that that we're going to grapple with in life. Not from some stranger or some teacher at school. You be the one that speaks that into your kids' lives. And, and, And let me say it, it's hard and it's awkward and it's embarrassing. Do it anyway. God's given it to you to do. Remember that, that old blood commercial? It's, it's in you to give. Love, it's in you to give. Dads, you got this. You, you really do. I, I believe God has given you the, the kind of position to be able to speak words into your kids' lives that will change their trajectory. So go for it. It's never too late to do that, by the way. Um, there were still things my dad said to me on my deathbed that are like echoes in my head. I'm glad he said them when he said them. And you, so wherever you're at, uh, dads, speak some of the words you maybe sense you're, you're meant to speak into your kids' lives. You've got the power. Let me say this, just conclude with his thought this morning. Um, there's God's grace. No matter what family relationship we're in, it's, it's through his love. Through God's grace, we can love our closest of neighbors who most often are our family. Again, not all of us are, are parents or our, our children or married, but we can learn to practice, all of us can learn to practice this beautiful art of submitting to others and respecting and loving unconditionally and sacrificing and when appropriate, obeying, most certainly honoring. Before we pray, let me just uh, quote Mother Teresa here. She has a good word for all of us today. today. She says, if you want to change the world, Go home and love your family. Let's, uh, make, let's pray. Lord, um, this morning as we uh, gather today in your name, God, we just, we've touched on such a sensitive issue. Paul has, has drawn it out, God, and we're just trying to, to hear what you're saying. But he, he invites us, you invite us, Father, to, to clothe ourselves with love. And, and Lord, before we do that, Lord, we just want to confess that, that sometimes we're clothed in other things. And we want to be free of those things. We want to love well. We want to be able to put on compassion and kindness and tenderness and gentleness. All these things, Lord, Lord you invite us to do. We want to learn what it means to forgive others as, as we have been forgiven. God, would you give us grace to do this, Lord, we pray. Lord, teach, uh, teach us, Lord, what it looks like for wives. Teach, teach our wives to look to, to become to know what it means to respect their husbands, to treat them respectfully, Lord, this unconditional respect. Father, I pray for husbands this morning. Lord, teach us, Lord, empower us to love our wives as Christ loves the church and gave his life up for, for her. May we learn 
what it looks like to sacrifice for our wives. And God, we, it, we don't even know, some of us, whether we're harsh guys or not, but we want to renounce that. If there's any, any truth in that, that we're, we're behaving or treating our wives harshly, forgive us, Lord. Grant us grace to, to treat our wives, with, our wives with gentleness and respect, too. And Father, we, uh, we think of the parents in this room and the kids, and uh, just bless the families in this church. Bless, bless us as we seek to raise up kids well and uh, teaching them not just to obey, but to want to obey. Lord, grant us a, an amazing grace to be able to do that. I pray where we failed already, where we can look, and, and it's been kind of convicting this morning, I pray that just you'd give us courage to step out in, in, in ways and speak and love in, in powerful ways into the lives of our kids. Um, where it's been really, really tough, we pray, grant us your grace. In, in all these things, Lord, we just, we just know that uh, we can't do this on our own very well. Fill us this morning. Pour out your love upon each of us. If it's, if it's honoring parents, teach us what that looks like. Grant us grace to do so, we pray. And we ask all these things together in Jesus' name. Amen.